President Kim, members of the Board of Trustees, distinguished members of the faculty, graduates, families, friends, uh, this is a wonderful occasion. Uh, our graduation is a splendid achievement, a time of reflection, a time of fulfillment, uh, a time perhaps of a little anxiety. Uh, what comes next? Uh, suddenly life is changing. Uh, seminary may have been a wilderness or a promised land, but whichever it was for you, it's changing. And uh, our prayers for you, our good wishes for you, is that uh, the change will be good, and above all, that the change will confirm you in being servants of the Lord. Um, I thought, what could I speak on better than that there is life after seminary? Uh, I thought I could encourage you and uh, reassure you and Professor Johnson uh, that there is life after seminary. Life goes on. Uh, life can even be good. Um, I, uh, I was at Westminster Seminary for 43 years and still left without a degree. So, uh, you know, I had to meditate uh, on these things and have realized, yeah, it could be good. You, you may be able to give a graduation speech uh, in the future. Um, you may get your picture hung in the library uh, uh, in the future. Um, but above all, uh, you will continue to serve the Lord in various ways, in various callings. And I just want to make two not entirely brief points. Uh, first is that you go out to serve the Lord in a constantly changing world. Uh, but you go out to serve the Lord with an unchangingly constant word. And I hope you'll always bear that in mind. Uh, there's no real way of telling how the world is going to change uh, in the near future, in the more distant future. Um, that's actually an encouragement to historians. It assures that we will continue to be employed and uh, have uh, changes to mark. Um, as I think about change, of course, as a historian, I have to think back about anniversaries we're celebrating this year, which have marked changes. Uh, 450 years ago, as you all know, was the beginning of the 80 Years' War, uh, when uh, Calvinists with others began to revolt against King Philip of Spain and would ultimately create a new nation with a new church in the Netherlands. You do remember that, don't you? Um, 400 years ago, uh, was the, this very month was the defenestration of Prague. No gasps of remembrance. Calvinists had taken over the castle in Prague and the emperor sent two envoys to protest that and the Calvinists threw the two envoys out of the window in Prague. Uh, one of the events that helped spark the Thirty Years' War the most violent war in European history down till World War I. Those were the days when Calvinists didn't just talk about cultural transformation, but did it. 
Uh, <laughs> this is the 400th anniversary of the beginning of the Synod of Dort, which uh, was held because there had been a coup d'etat by the Calvinists. So you have big shoes to fill, uh, big changes to introduce. Uh, just 100 years ago was the end of the First World War, most violent war in human history up till that point. It was also the end of empires that had existed for centuries. The Hohenzollern Emperor in Germany abdicated. The Habsburg Emperor in the Austro-Hungarian Empire abdicated. The Russian Tsar, who had abdicated the year before, was slaughtered with his family and marked part of the beginning of the Red Terror in Russia a hundred years ago. The end of empire. People probably couldn't believe it who lived at that time. What change? And now we hardly remember those things at all. A hundred years ago, Billy Graham was born. And he would mark in his life the end of Protestant hegemony in America. You go out to minister in a country, those of you who will stay in America, that is no longer a Protestant country. It's a new world. Things have changed. A hundred years ago, as you remember vividly, Amy Semple McPherson arrived in Los Angeles, also helping to change the face of Protestantism in America. Change is inevitable, isn't it? Uh, change can be violent or it can be peaceful. It can be small or it can be great. But change will happen. And what we face at this moment as we go out for ministry is a world increasingly dominated by secular ideologies. Last year, you remember, we celebrated the Reformation. We talked a lot about the solas of the Reformation. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, the glory of God alone. Well, we go out to minister in a world, in this country at least, where there's another sola. Bread alone. Bread alone. Solo pana for you Latin scholars. Why do I say that? It's because we live in a world where many, many people believe it is only this life. It is only the physical realities of this life that matter. And so you're going out to be servants of God to try to convince people that there are spiritual realities that matter. That it's not only this life that matters. That man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's a high calling. It's a demanding calling. It may be a dangerous call, but it's what the Lord calls you to. Uh, we live in a post-Christian world, as many have said, which means it's often hard to get people to even think about Christianity. Because so often their reaction is, oh, I know all about that. We've tried that. It doesn't work. We're done with that. And as a historian, 
a Christian historian, I'm always tempted to say, how have those secular convictions, how have those bread alone convictions worked for you in the last century? How has bread alone communism done as an ideology of life only in this world? Or how has bread alone fascism done as an ideology of life alone in this world? Or how has secularism that has promoted in the entertainment field and the media field and the educational field in this country wanton sexuality done when it's discovered itself full of sexual assaults and abuse? How's it done? How's that working for you? We as Christians, I think, have to press questions that will help people see that living by bread alone doesn't work. In retirement, I've been reading some murder mysteries. Okay, I did it before I retired. <laughs> and one of my favorites is Philip Kerr, who writes a lot about a policeman in fascist Germany. And his latest novel, he had a quotation from Tacitus. I was initially just going to read the quotation from Tacitus and pretend I'd been reading Tacitus, but I decided that might smack of dishonesty. Um, and maybe one of you has read that book and would know. Um, but he quotes this from Tacitus. They ravage, they slaughter, they seize by false pretenses, and all of this they hail as the construction of empire. And when in their wake nothing remains but a desert, they call that peace. I fear that's a world in which we live to a remarkable extent. We don't know if it'll continue that way because it's constantly changing. But it's a tough world we face right now but the encouragement that is ours, the hope that is ours, the confidence that must be ours, is that in a constantly changing world, there's an unchangingly constant word. And that's what you've been here studying. That's what you've been working on. Uh, that's what we as an institution are committed to. We can't anticipate the world you will be ministering to in 10 years, 20 years, 40 years. But we know that what you'll need for that world is a confidence in the unchangingly constant word of God. And that's what Moses is saying here in Deuteronomy. I had a friend in my church time how long it would have been taken for Moses to preach the sermon of Deuteronomy. It's just one sermon, you know, slightly on the long side, five and a half hours. Uh, I'm not going to go quite that long. But one of the recurring themes of Deuteronomy is the word, the word, the word. Be careful with the word. Know the word. Do the word. The word. Are you listening? The word. Because the truth is the world is constantly saying the word is not enough. The word is not reliable. The word is not what we need. The word is not what you need. We need something else. 
And Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying, it's the word. Moses was too refined, so he didn't say it's the word stupid. But it's the word stupid. It's what we need. It's what we must have confidence in. It's very interesting, this third verse of Deuteronomy chapter 3. Where by the Spirit of God, Moses says, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every... Now, your Hebrew scholars will know. I assume you brought your Hebrew Bibles with you. You Hebrew scholars will know that what this actually says is, but man lives by every commandment that comes from the mouth of God. Calvin, in his marvelous sermon on Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, you should read that sermon. I probably should have just read it to you. It would be better than mine. Uh, Calvin says, we must come to the word of God with our ears to hear it and to know it. But we must always come also with our hands and with our feet to obey it and to follow it. And so the stress here is on commandment because Moses is so worried they won't listen and they won't follow and they won't do what the Lord is calling them to. And so he alludes, more than alludes, he makes explicit reference to how God fed them in the wilderness with manna. And you all remember that story. Israel was in the wilderness They'd been gone from Egypt a whole 15 days, and they were already grumbling. Why did you bring us out into this wilderness to die of hunger when we were full of bread in Egypt? Man does not live by bread alone. And so the Lord tested them to see what was in their hearts, tested them with hunger to see how they would respond and on whom they would rely. And they didn't do very well with the test, did they? Just simple regulations about manna. Only gather enough to eat on one day and don't gather on the Sabbath. It's not very complicated, is it? Any idiot can remember that. But they didn't obey, did they? They gathered more than they needed and it rotted. And they went out to gather on the Sabbath, and there was nothing there. He tested them, and they didn't do so well with the test. And so now Moses is reminding them. He's reminding them very interestingly that God fed them in the wilderness with a bread from heaven that they'd never known. And part of the point, I think, is be aware that God can do things that you haven't known, that you're not expecting. As the world changes, God finds ways of saving his people in the midst of change. Not always what we expect, not always what we look for, not always what we trust in. The people grumbled about the manna. Why do we have to eat this manna every day? 
That's right. Why not get tired of the bread of angels? Why not get tired of the bread of heaven? Why not get tired of the bread that God has provided for you so that you don't need to sow or reap or grind or cook? And he wanted to teach them that he could provide for them. And so this verse was very much on the Savior's mind, wasn't it? When he was in the wilderness, when the tester came to test what was in his heart. And when the tester in his cleverness said to the Savior, turn these stones into bread if you are the Son of God. And implicit in that, perhaps, is the thought, after all, didn't, didn't God provide bread for Israel in the wilderness? How wrong can it be to turn stones into bread? And how does the Savior respond? He responds, in effect, saying, you know, actually, I don't take the devil's advice. I follow the divine path. And the divine path is not that I'm not hungry. The divine path is not that I'm not desiring bread. But the divine path is I'm trusting God to provide what I need when I need it. That's what his word promises. That's what he always provides. Calvin, in his sermon on Deuteronomy 8, says, if we didn't ever have adversity, how would we really be able to tell what's in our hearts? The Lord is testing us still. Calvin writes, we're still in school. The quotation is kind of interesting because we don't usually think of Calvin as a kind of fun guy. And we're right. Uh, and we don't think he says anything very funny very often, and we're right. But it's almost funny what he says in this sermon about school and about students. And one can't help but hear a little of the teacher in the background of this statement of Calvin's where he said, although God does the office of a good schoolmaster and never leaves teaching us, Yet there is none of us that takes heed of it, but time is lost. We are like children that are hardened or become truants. So, that, uh, so do what a master can, the child does but laugh and scorn him. He gives not his mind at all to learning, but his wits are wandering abroad, and either he gives himself to folly or lewdness, or else runs loitering up and down the streets when he should have a book in his hand. Doesn't that sound like a professor's reaction to a class? And Calvin says, at that same point are we. For we have a book open before us. And as long as we be in this world, God teaches us by all manner of means to love him and to fear him and to put our trust in him and to submit ourselves to his goodwill. Uh, Jesus didn't turn stones into bread because Jesus knew that God had a providential plan that was good. 
And while it included his suffering, Jesus knew that it was redemptive. And that's what we too have to learn at the feet of the Savior. Jesus was in the wilderness and Jesus was tempted, but he did not fail. He obeyed the will of God. He obeyed all the commandments of God. He took the word of God seriously and listened to it carefully and fulfilled it fully. Regrettably, I cannot say that the history of the church demonstrates the church has always followed in the path of the Savior on that point. We have often followed our own counsel. We have often followed our own wisdom. And one of the saddest things said in the Bible, in Psalm 81, is he gave them over to their own wisdom. Don't follow your own wisdom. Follow the word of God. Follow it carefully. Cherish it. Cling to it. It is so sad how bad off the church is today far and wide. The weakness of the church today is extraordinary. Not just in terms of its external influence, but because of its internal character. And you go out wanting to save it, wanting to empower it, wanting to lead people into it, and that's great, and that's good. But be sure you're always doing it God's way according to his word. I don't think it's too much to say that Jesus had Deuteronomy 8 on his mind when he gave the Great Commission. You know, Americans too often have thought the Great Commission is go out into all the world and gather as many people as humanly possible by whatever means will draw them. But that's not what Jesus said, is it? It's not even close to what Jesus said. Jesus said, go and make disciples. Disciples. People who are followers of me. And how do people follow me? They follow me when they have been taught to observe all things that I have commanded. It's not just listening, but it's following with hands and feet. Don't do evangelism. If they were the news media here, that'd be the one sentence they would quote. Make disciples by teaching them all that the Lord has commanded. And we don't know what he'll do, do we? He may let the church shrink and shrink and shrink. He may renew the church in glory in these days. Or we may just go on muddling along. But the good news is that if we're being faithful to the word of God, then we are accomplishing his purpose whatever we see. And so I hope, as you've spent years here studying the word, 
that you'll continue to study the Word. Continue to read the Word. Continue to read good books. Don't just read new books. There's occasionally a good new book. I can recommend one or two. Um, but read the really great books that will help you understand the Bible, help you teach the Bible, but above all, in a constantly changing world, be servants of the unchangingly constant word. And may God reach you blessedly in whatever the calling is to which you've been called. Thank you.